0: Welcome to the Minerals and Royalties Podcast, the home of CEOs and investors in the minerals and royalties space. Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Council. I recently sat down with Logan Hefner, Partner and VP of Engineering at Rye Ridge Resources, a Denver-based minerals and royalties aggregator that is focused on the Uinta Basin. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Logan has to say. Logan, good morning. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Thanks, Tim, for having me. Really appreciate it. Before we jump into the Rye Ridge Resources story, would love a little bit of background on yourself. You're in Denver. You went to Colorado School of Mines, so pretty synonymous with a lot of oilmen up there, right? In your career track, I'm sure. But just paint that picture: where you grew up. Have you always been in Denver? why you wanted to get in oil and gas and how you ended up in minerals, because I know you had an EMP background before you joined up with Reed a couple of years back. Yeah, totally. I'm
1: from New Orleans originally and uh, moved with the family to Houston right before high school. Both my parents are in oil and gas, and so I'm kind of born-bred to a degree. My grandfather was a geologist and had his own firm in New Orleans, and so I kind of had that as somewhat of a background. But actually, for School of Mines, I was totally focused on playing soccer somewhere in college. And the more, you know, we whittled down, School of Mines was always, you know, a a really interesting choice. And I never really honestly thought of going full-blown math and science and engineering, but it just, it made sense. And I'm glad that it was in Golden, Colorado. It's an awesome place to be. And so,
0: I have a bit of a similar story. So I grew up in New York and played golf competitively and did the whole recruiting thing and really narrowed down my schools from the lens of what's the best opportunity for golf. And, you know, I want a smaller school. I want good academics. Just there's a number of of other things on the criteria list. But I got down to Houston, went to Rice University, really had zero vision on getting into oil and gas or really anything beyond that it was all about the golf first and then just getting good grades good diploma after that and then a couple years in i'm like okay not really as good as i thought i was not gonna go pro (laughs) what else is out there and you find yourself sat in colorado or or houston texas and oil and gas is a great career path right so anyways yeah
1: to be honest you know i i wasn't school of mines wasn't on my radar neither was colorado I so I tore my ACL beginning of my senior season in high school, and a lot of the colleges that I was talking to and the coaches and all that just as soon as they found out I was on crutches, it was just radio silence. And so, um, I'm one of those people that I think most, if not all, things happen for a reason. And I, that drove me to going to a really good school and, and where I'm at now. And so, no regrets. Obviously, it was a, a really tough
0: time, but you know, I, I think it was meant to be. And so, yeah, I'm glad I'm I'm back here. So. Perfect. So then walk me through. So when do you graduate? And you have an engineering hat on. So when did you decide that you wanted to be an engineer? What was your first job? And again, time frame is helpful so we can get context with industry cycles and the financial crisis at the end of 08 and just match things up so we know kind of why you made certain pivots in your career and so on and so forth. Yeah,
1: so I graduated in 2010. I knew immediately getting to school that I was going to be going into petroleum engineering. So petroleum engineer degree and yeah, so 2010 and I had a couple internships, one with Rosetta Resources and another with Goodrich Petroleum, both in Houston and like mainly Gulf Coast, Texas, Louisiana assets. And so especially after those couple internships, you know, not only was I thinking, yeah, petroleum is what I'm meant to be doing, but more specifically a reservoir engineer by trade within the industry. And those two internships really kind of guided me to that. And with my first gig out of school being at Goodrich Petroleum as a reservoir engineer, 80% of my career has been reservoir engineering, a couple production engineering stints. And after Goodrich was amazing. I love that company. It's small, public, and I learned a ton from those guys. And after a few years, you know, I was really wanting to get back to Colorado and QEP was looking and I thought it would be really interesting to get some Rockies experience and be a good way to get back to Denver. And so joined up with QEP in 2012 and was there for a couple of years and you know, it was a much bigger company than Goodrich. And so kind of wanted to get back to that smaller type shop, went to Great Western, a smaller private company that is in the uh, DJ Basin. Pretty much a pure play DJ Basin operator. And yeah, that kind of brought me up until I met Reed in 2018. I had always wanted to do my own thing and partner up with a group or, or just a partner. And it was just very fortuitous timing. When I met Reed, he had just kind of exited. He had put together a small friends and family fund in the DJ Basin. And he put together a nice position in the southern part of the DJ Basin right before that really took off. And so he exited out of that right as we were kind of getting together. And he was all in the minerals space and really sold me on the thesis of, you know, raising another fund, a larger fund, and doing it again. And so, so that brings us to, like, beginning of 2018 when I left Great Western and partnered with Reed
0: and is Reed is he more of a land background because and what was the context of you guys crossing paths was it through mutual friends or just dallas petroleum club i mean you bring the engineering expertise to the table and you know one thing that's pretty common is that when things were frothy it was very much a land play kind of aggregate flip through it again simultaneous closes etc cetera, it was a way to make a good living right but yeah as the space has evolved a bit and more sophistication has come to the space, having technical capabilities is as important as ever. And yeah. so was that kind of where Reed and you kind of came to the meeting of the minds to partner up on the next fund?
1: Yeah, to really echo that point. You know, Reed really wanted someone on the technical side. And, you know, he had really good success in his previous fund and that thesis. And so being able to beef up the technical side to your point is especially in the mineral space, which that was that wasn't really a thing. It was more, you know, lawyers, attorneys, landmen, you know, et cetera, that made up most of the kind of ground game buying. And so he knew that, you know, to really have that competitive advantage, especially in basins that are a little sleepier, it's good to yeah, have that technical background. And so yeah, hope that answers your question. But the way we met is it, it was just it was completely organic and just somewhat out of the blue. You know, like I mentioned, I was always wanted to do my own thing. So taking every coffee and, you know, beer and happy hours that I could with just meeting new people in the industry that were kind of like-minded. I met Reed through a guy that was in Dallas who knew Reed and knew that Reed wanted to do something and met Reed for coffee and then beers after that. And then it just, it made sense. We clicked, had our families meet up and it just, we're like, let's do this thing. So.
0: No, that's great. And by the way, on a, on a side note, I, just curious. So when you said you wanted to get back up to Denver in the beginning of your career, did you already have a family at that point or just like being up in Denver when you were in college? Because we've done a series of episodes here and that's been a trend for quite a few folks is just saying, yeah, I, I could have gone on with this company, but I needed a career change and I really like living in, in so-and-so city. Uh, another example, Oscar Torres, who runs Tower Rock, oil Gas. He started his career with Worldty Clearinghouse late 90s got offered a job in midland wanted to stay in austin and got this job offer from a startup minerals company didn't know what minerals really was all about but like you said life happens for you not to you you just follow that path and so it's just interesting to hear that more and more and i guess for those out there who are listening who are building teams just kind of identifying that there's a lot of really good talent out there so if you want to build teams in certain cities just identifying the kind of the life aspect of their careers right and where right. their families are and where they want to live and everything because and, you can run a royalties company from anywhere right so oh yeah for sure there's talented executives all over but yeah it's a bit of a digression but i'm just curious hey guys i wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to noble royalties for sponsoring our minerals and royalties podcast as a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997 Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at c.morris@nobleroyalties.com. at nobleroyalties.com. I also want to thank Enverus, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. MineralSoft is Enveris's minerals management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is an Enverus platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, MineralSoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enversecom or email businessdevelopment at Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode.
1: So in Houston, going back. So Goodrich 2012-ish. Yeah, I was coming out of a long-term relationship. And so not only was I, uh, you know, I fell in love with Colorado after being at School of Mines for four years and just I wanted to get back to Denver. I knew that. And I think kind of, my relationship stuff kind of expedited that transition um, <laughs> get the hell out of know? it right yeah and i was lucky on the timing with you know a few groups in denver were looking and they were willing to relocate and yeah so obviously qvp was one of those and i jumped on it and was like you know what i'm going to do everything i can to stay here if i can and luckily i've been able to do that and met my now wife in 2014 and yeah you know, we've got two kids and We're in Golden, so we've got some pretty deep roots. And now, you know, my parents, they were in Houston for a while, but they, like I mentioned, they're in oil and gas. And my mom was with Parsley Energy. My dad was with Contra Resources for a number of years, and they moved from Houston to Midland. So my brother and I had to get used to the idea of (laughs) flying from not Denver to Houston, but Denver to Midland, which is very different. Mm -hmm. And Midland's obviously even very different from Spring Woodlands area, which is, where I did my high school years in Houston, so but my parents are now in Denver, my brother is in Denver, and so the whole family's kind of back together and more or less relocated permanently to to denver so it's it's been great
0: well so let's jump back in so circa two thousand and eighteen, you joined Forza with Reed and you guys decide to go out and raise a small high net worth and family offices fund and talk about how the strategy evolved because it's gotten very rifle shot. And what I find really interesting about you guys is that typically these rifle shot funds are kind of core of core Eagleford or Midland Basin or Delaware, and you guys ended up focusing on the Uinta Basin. So why don't you walk me through where you guys were in 2018, how things evolved and where you are today in terms of the strategy and what you're building in your portfolio. Yeah, 2018, we were on the road a bunch, obviously, with the fundraise. And
1: we were always going to be Rockies focused. We felt there's for us and our skill set and our experience more of an opportunity in the Rockies for us. And going out, we actually had this multi-basin approach where we were going to be Bach and DJ and Uinta. And given, you know, after the fundraise we ended up little sub ten million fund. We figured it would be good and just more advantageous for us just to focus in one basin. Uh, the Bakken is obviously gigantic. The DJ is also big, but does have its political hair on it. But the Uinta was kind of this, and still is, you know, it's this re-emerging play with respect to, you know, horizontal drilling. And it's been around for a long time, but with, you know, especially some recent well performance, we had, we were obviously looking at what was going on in, in all of these basins and just First off, hearing what was going on in the Uinta as far as production performance and these gigantic wells, it, it drove us to really to dive in and study it in a very detailed way. And so the more we looked at it compared to the risk profiles associated with the DJ and Williston basins, we felt for our fund size and how mobile we could be, that the Uinta would be a custom fit place for us to put some dollars to work in the mineral space. And we it's a lot easier. It's A, a dollar goes a, a longer way in the Uinta Basin than the Bach and the DJ. And I think that's just where the opportunity lies is because it's earlier on, certainly, than the Bach and the DJ and the Permian and most of the other big unconventional basins with respect to horizontal drilling. But it's trending in a very exciting way.
0: And one thing I really found interesting in our conversation offline is the geology and the uniqueness of the Uinta. I'll give you permission here to nerd out for a little bit, but I know being (laughs) a technical hat, you came across the Uinta and were really diving in and found it quite fascinating. You want to just expand upon that a little bit and how it might compare to other basins out there that are as prolific or more prolific? So when you think about some of the other bigger basins
1: like the Williston, Permian, DJ, a lot of those are, they're kind of, they're open marine, shallow marine, very aerially expansive, very, very big. And obviously, you know, each basin in play has their cores and but when you compare that to the Uinta the depositional environment of the Uinta basin is lacustrine so it's this ancient lake that existed for like over 10 million years and I think was one of the longest existing lakes known to man in the geologic record so that just geologically was very different compared to the bigger basins and so what's interesting is it, it's a lot smaller especially the core where we're focused is in the overpressure the overpressured oil play and that spans a handful of townships versus like 30 townships plus in the bakken for for instance and it's for us you know that it's good and bad you know for us it's really good because it almost creates a bullseye just from a geological standpoint where this is you know although it is smaller there's only so many places to go as far as new drills and delineation because you know when you're out of that the overpressure cell it it changes pretty quickly. So as an engineer and a technical person, I love having the geology lead us. And that can only take you so far, obviously, if don't have much of an idea of where development's gonna go, but just given the size of it, it kind of narrows that down and it does give you a little more line of sight on on where operators are going to go. And so there's that. And then also, it's got over 2,000 feet of gross interval. And in some places, it's up near 5,000 feet. And so, compared to the Bakken, for instance, where maybe you're dealing with 50 feet thickness, I mean, it's, it's a ton of resource packed into a small area at generation depth and within an overpressure cell. And so, all of that kind of sets up for a really exciting area and the well performance is also telling that story and is corroborating what we see on the geology too.
0: Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at CMorris at I also want to thank Enveris, a leading energy SaaS company that has software platforms designed to empower oil and gas companies through analytics and highly technical insights. Mineralsoft is Enverus's minerals management platform that enables owners to capture missing revenue and maximize the value of their minerals portfolios. EnergyLink is an Enverus platform for automating joint venture and owner relations business processes. If you're interested in learning more about Enverus, Mineralsoft, and EnergyLink, then please visit www.enverus.com or email businessdevelopmentenverus.com. Thanks, now let's jump back into the episode. You know, when you look at the Bach and Discounts, pricing discounts on the midstream side can become a challenge. What does the Uinta Basin look like from an infrastructure takeaway perspective? You said it, it's kind of an older basin that's been revived with horizontal drilling. Is there legacy infrastructure in place? Are bottlenecks a challenge? And why don't you expand upon that?
1: Yeah, it can be a challenge. The makeup of the oil that's produced out of the Uinta Basin has a a strong waxy component.
0: It's very different
1: from some of the other oil uh, coming from a lot of the other more popular basins. A lot of it, most of it is trucked west out of the basin to a handful of refineries in Salt Lake City. And, you know, that does carry uh, at times a higher deduct. There's some pipeline out there. There's also some rail that's taking it out. Big push right now is, is a, a big rail line to hook up and take it to the Gulf Coast. Is The, the Gulf Coast actually likes this oil makeup. It's It spans a, a pretty wide spectrum of end uses, and at, at times it does receive a premium. So it's a different oil makeup. There are challenges, but like we see with pretty much every other basin, it, it's not immune to infrastructure and takeaway constraints here and there.
0: And then kind of looking at, so you guys start raising the second fund 2018. When did you close the fund and when did you start to deploy capital? Because what I really want you to paint the picture on is the Uinta in a pre and post COVID world and what that's looked like. And we can dissect that in a number of ways. But how long you guys been deploying capital in the Uinta? We were deploying capital before we even raised this existing fund, just
1: so we didn't miss out on any of the opportunities in the basin. We closed; we kind of did this dual closing, but we, in earnest, closed the fund October of 2019. And again, putting money to work before then, but we're able to bring on some bigger investors by doing kind of this second closing and bringing a couple more guys. And so, October 2019 is when we closed it. And yeah, that's we've just been trying to put it to work since then. I mean, we're getting pretty close to more or less exhausting or just getting to the threshold of being able to potentially raise another fund. But yeah, we're putting that money to work as we speak still.
0: So then kind of looking at second half of 2019 up until March, we'll use that as kind of the lie in the sand with COVID hitting its tipping point and then the oil price war, obviously. How has development activity in the area been on either side of that? You know, obviously it's gone down because of oil prices and everything, but in the scheme of things and the portfolios of the companies that are there, has Uinta stood out as an area they want to continue developing? You had mentioned to me that EP Energy, Oventive, XTL Resources, and Finley are some of the bigger operators that are active there. Have you seen continued appetite for them to invest in the region?
1: Yeah, we do. And I always mix this up. XTL, I believe, is NCAP or NGP. I always mix those up, but, uh, point is there's large private equity and public dollars that are being spent in the Uinta basin. And yeah, so it's EP, Oventu, which was in Canada, which was Newfield for that. XCL and Finley. Yeah, there's still, yeah, obviously with the world being turned upside down in March and moving forward, things definitely paused. Permitting was still happening, but rigs moved out. But now we're seeing them come back in. But Yeah, there's definitely a lot of investment still, and these guys very much believe in in the basin and are very excited about it, just like we are. So it was crazy. You know, things kind of froze up and deal flow was more or less frozen. I think folks just got, they were just overall uncomfortable, you know, like we all were. And so not much was moving during the height of the pandemic, but coming out of it, you know, I really think that at the end of the day, well performance and geology are going to, Speak volumes, and you know. Once we're hoping is that once the economy turns back to life and things get moving again, you know, those core well performance areas and cores of all these basins are going to be where it's at, and you know, I I think the Uinta is going to be right in that mix too.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the landowner makeup of the Uinta. So, one, are most of the landowners local? Two, are they highly fractionalized, or do you have are these tribal lands or are there large ranchers or these out-of-state folks uh, be curious because that i think there's some uniqueness there to the uinta right and having dealing with landowners in each basin there's a cultural difference so any insights there and then on the back of that how the bid-ask spread has been you said deal folk was kind of in gridlock at the height of the pandemic i think that's not a surprise but historically i'm sure the pricing in the uinta probably wasn't as frothy as the Permian, for instance. So has it been, uh, the landlords been more reasonable to try to get deals done on the back? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So on the makeup of
1: the mineral owners, you know, it's where we're focused in the overpressure sell, a lot of it is conveniently fee. I mean, there's a, a big tribal component to state fed, but a lot of it is fee. So that's where we're focused. And Yeah, originally larger ranchers, large families, but in the Uinta, it's pretty fractured. It's very difficult to find 90% of the time. It's a huge challenge. And so I think that's kind of a barrier to entry for a lot of folks. And just because it's just so fractured, it's large families and it's gotten broken up. And that's the case for most plays. But given that it's a, a much smaller footprint in the Uinta, it means a lot more to find these families, just because, like I said, there's only so many places to go. And we're so very focused as far as aerial extent. We just really make a point and try our hardest to to identify these existing owners. So yeah, a lot of times it is pretty broken up. And as far as bid-ask spread, I mean, we are putting money to work, I guess, in a very judicious really holding, sticking to our guns, more or less. Thankfully, in the Uinta, it's, it's not like the Permian. It's not like most other basins, we're trying to get in as much as we can and stick to our price point. And thankfully, we've had a lot of success doing so. And now that the pandemic is obviously where it's at, but it's, it's not like how it was in May or March through May, things are starting to loosen back up. And so we're just trying to stay focused and put this money to work.
0: Yeah. And have you guys traditionally been buying ahead of the drill bit? Were you PDP buyers? Has there been a shift in regards to the risk appetite? post-COVID?
1: No, we're sticking to it. Our strategy was more undeveloped focused. That definitely lined out with more clarity after we decided to focus fully on the Uinta Basin. Again, just given that it's a handful of townships that we're talking about, we naturally got into a lot of PDP, but our focus was ahead of the drill bit with existing PDP, but knowing that as long as we stay in The geology that we like and that we identify as tier one, we feel good about that. So whether it's PDP or duct or fully undeveloped, we're pretty agnostic.
0: No, fantastic. Well, uh, listen, Logan, I I appreciate you coming on. And it's interesting to get a different perspective on here. I don't think we've had anyone who's had an exclusive focus on the Uinta. So appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your comments. As a closeout to the episode, like to give you the floor, just a message to your peers and investors out there. I don't know if you guys like to incubate your assets and exit them. So potentially a message to end buyers out there or others on club deals, or if you're going out for another fundraise, I know you said you near exhausted your your current fund. So possibly to investors out there, I'll let you take it away.
1: Yeah, I'd say as as far as our existing fund it's we've got a pretty long life on it obviously we'll be opportunistic with regards to pricing and where that sits next year because who knows but we're above a thousand acres and we will look to exit once it meets our hurdle rate for us and our lps and i think if that's next year or year after whether depending on what happens with oil prices we'll look at that opportunity So, and yeah, I think that's the idea, right? Is I think there's an opportunity right now and as where the market currently sits to put another fund together. I don't think I'll see another opportunity or event like this and my career, I could be wrong, but it's a good time to be buying. And I think the future is bright, although it's obviously been a crazy, crazy year, but I think things are going to get better and we kind of have to be bullish at the end of the day. So.
0: Well, fantastic. Logan, thanks again for the time, sir. All the best to you and the family and to Reed and we'll be in touch, things get back to normal and uh, we're all hopefully doing business in person like the good old days. Thank
1: you very much, Tim, for having me on.
0: Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast, I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Council represents the largest network of senior minerals and royalties focused executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge To facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital buy and sell deals and form new partnerships if you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team then please email me at tim.powell at energycouncil.com or visit our website at www.energycouncil.com forward slash minerals dash royalties dash council forward slash Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.